Thanks, Allison, and thanks, everyone, for coming. I want to talk to you today about uh, what I think is one of the essential questions in the interaction between science and Christianity, and that is the interaction of God with the material world. At least to my mind, this is one of the essential questions, and I think it's one of the key questions that people have in the back of their mind when, as Bill Newsom said yesterday in, in one of his talks, you get that funny look from your scientific colleagues when they find out that you have a religious faith. How can you believe that God acts in the world if there are natural laws, if science and scientific explanations are useful and prevail? And as a matter of fact, what I'm trying to avoid is the kind of reasoning that's depicted on this slide. So by my definition, at least one aspect of science is elimination of supernatural explanations. Right, so how can we reconcile God's interaction with the existence of natural laws? This is the kind of thing I'm trying to avoid. For those of you who can't see, there's a see this, there's a scientist in the middle of a very uh, obtuse derivation, and there's a step in the middle that just simply says, then a miracle occurs. And his colleague is saying, I think you should be a little bit more explicit here. This is the kind of thing that I think is unfair. It's unfair for us to apply natural laws natural physical laws to a point where we can only explain, we, we have a few things left that we can't explain, and then just say, well, this is where God acts now. And I'm trying to expand today a little bit the range of phenomena that may be subject to physical principles, physical mathematical principles. So here's part of my premise. Christian faith is based on verifiable historical evidence. There are things in the historical record that we can point to as a justification for our faith. Therefore, we have good reason to believe that objective, the same kind of objective exploration can lead to truth about the universe, that will, God will not deceive us in this endeavor, that we can trust the explorations of science done properly to tell us how the universe works and correspondingly tell us how God might be acting in this universe. I'm going to do this by taking two different viewpoints, not coincidentally two things that are of interest to me both personally and professionally in my, in my work, my research work. Uh, one is randomness, the nature of randomness, and the other is sensory, sensory illusions, and I'll go through them in that order. So we appreciate the beauty and elegance of physical laws. I think most of us in the sciences and engineering certainly would agree with that. Also, mathematical laws. Mathematical laws doing a fantastic job of explaining physical laws. We're going to get into that in a little more detail in just a second. These offer powerful explanations of the physical world, demonstrate its underlying order. There are also rules governing randomness. There is a beauty and an order to randomness. And therefore, I'm going to posit that we should include randomness what we otherwise, otherwise might want to consider as acts of God in the normal course of natural laws, what we can usually consider deterministic natural laws. And what I'm trying to do is avoid what I sometimes call the epicycle problem, epicycles being uh, an explanation from planetary orbits back hundreds of years ago when, when early astronomers 
saw that orbits could not be explained, at least from the point of view of an Earth-based observer, as a purely circular orbit going around the Earth. And therefore, you had to throw epicycles upon epicycles to explain why the planets would appear to go backwards at some times. And it was all got to be very confusing. But likewise, I've seen people go through similar mental contortions in trying to explain things in the physical world in terms of how could God let this happen. For example, an explanation, that I, an example that I have actually heard a few times, let's say a tornado goes through a town, wipes out a couple of houses, leaves other ones completely intact. People want to come to terms with this, so they start looking for explanations. Why would God let this happen? Who did God choose to take out today? Well, the people in this house were church-going Christians. The people in this house were maybe evil, or maybe they were evil and we didn't know they were evil, or maybe these people were about to commit some crimes, and therefore it gets all very confusing, cannot be proven, very subjective, and it seems to me possibly a less theologically satisfying, but I think more scientifically realistic viewpoint is to say, I'm sorry, it's just randomness. You're just a victim of randomness. Now, let me give you some examples of how, although randomness in that case, haphazard randomness in that case, can seem violent and capricious. Let me give you some examples of how, as a natural law that could be invoked by God, randomness has a beauty all of its own. So therefore, if we're willing to accept a lot of deterministic natural laws, we should look at randomness as being one of these God-ordained laws. I'm going to go through a couple of quotes. I hate to put up slides with a lot of words on because undoubtedly you're now reading while I'm talking. But I'm going to read through this with you so you don't have to read it yourself. This is an essay published 1960 by Eugene Wigner who was a famous mathematical physicist at the time, worked on the Manhattan Project, uh, very well known. The title of this essay is The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics in the Natural Sciences. It's something that most of us who have dealt with the natural sciences and mathematical explanations have certainly experienced. Why is it that math works as well as it does? Right? And the reason I'm going through this now is because I'm going to make a transition in a minute to the mathematics of random processes and show that there's a similar type of reasoning. So let's read through some of these. The first point in that is that, so these are, these are extracted from various places in the essay. The essay is rather brief, probably about five or six pages. It's available on the internet. And, and uh, if this intrigues you, I'd suggest you go and, and look it up. The first point is that the enormous usefulness of math in the natural sciences is something bordering on the mysterious. There is no rational explanation for it. Now, I'll remind you as I go through these that this is the writings of a mathematical physicist. This is not a sermon although you might wonder as we go through these. The great mathematician fully, almost ruthlessly, exploits the domain of permissible reasoning, skirts the impermissible. That his recklessness does not lead into a morass of contradictions is a miracle in itself. Certainly, it is hard to believe that our reasoning power was brought by Darwin's process of natural selection to the perfection which it seems to possess. You could get away with this on a Sunday sermon. It is, as Schrodinger has remarked, a miracle that in spite of the, of the baffling complexity of the world, certain regularities could be discovered. 
It's difficult to avoid the impression that a miracle confronts us here, that is, the mathematical concepts being so powerful in explaining the physics of the world. He likes to use the word miracle quite a bit here. And this is someone who, as far as I know, does not have any religious leanings, certainly was not a Christian, again, as far as I know. The miracle of the appropriateness of the language of math for the formulation of laws is a wonderful gift which we neither understand nor deserve. In other words, I'm making the point, and I'm certainly not the first to do this, that one of the very powerful ways that God works in the world, let's consider it almost a miraculous way that God chooses to work in the world, is through divinely ordained physical laws. Physical laws that are subject to mathematical explanations and including randomness. Now, part of the problem in grasping this might be the fact that people have a problem dealing intuitively with randomness. So that's what this is all about. So here are two quotes from two very different uh, scientists. Stephen Jay Gould, misunderstanding of probability may be the greatest of all impediments to scientific literacy. Probably talking about the reluctance among a large part of the population to uh, accept evolutionary, uh, evolutionary theory and random mutations and natural selection. Second quote from Francis Galton, I know of scarcely anything so apt to impress the imagination as the wonderful form of cosmic order expressed by the law of frequency of error. It reigns with serenity and complete self-effacement amidst the wildest confusion. The larger the mob, the greater the apparent anarchy, the more perfect its sway. It's the supreme law of unreason. Now, what he is referring to here is, in part, the generation of the normal or Gaussian probability distribution function by amassing a whole bunch of data points. So if you think uh, um, of this as explaining, for example, distribution of height among males in a population, no reason to believe that that, dis that, that, uh, that sample population should follow such a beautiful, mathematically describable curve. And yet it does. And what's most amazing is what he's talking about, about the larger the mob, the greater the apparent anarchy, the more people you include in your sample, the more orderly this gets, the, the better this, this curve fits your data, not the worse. So that's a miracle of sorts. Some other reasons that randomness, there may be a resistance to including randomness, considering randomness as a perhaps godly ordained principle. Humans are really bad at, uh, at uh, grasping in intuitive notions of randomness. An example, we're really bad at generating randomness. A lot of experiments over many years have tried to get humans to generate sequences of random numbers, sequences of random ones or zeros or yeses or nos, something like that. There's a tendency, first of all, to alternate. So if I have to generate a sequ random sequence of zeros and ones, well, I know it's got to be about 50-50. The easiest way to do that is to say 0, 1, 0, 1, 0, 0, 0, 1, 1. That's not random. If I have a coin that's heads, tails, heads, tails, heads, tails, that's 50-50, but that's not random. So we have a problem generating randomness. It's also a tendency to neglect extreme values. If I tell you to give me a set of 100 random numbers distributed from 1 to 10, you're going to tend to give me numbers in the middle and restrict yourself from the, from the periphery. Now, just as a side point, a side issue, I'll point out that fortunately, there are solutions to this problem 
back before computer random number generators were around and available for everyone, this wonderful book was published. And it is just what it describes. This is in the 1950s, I believe. A million random digits with 100,000 normal deviates. And here's what a page, a couple pages from that book looks like. Right, so what would this be good for? Random sampling experiments? Computer simulations, which you have to, had to use random numbers? You could just pick a page from this, and you've got your random numbers. While I'm on the topic of random numbers, it, it, computer random number generators, of course, are deterministic equations. They pass a lot of great tests for randomness, but they fail some. They're not truly random. Turns out if you want to get really real random numbers for your research, the best thing to do is get data on radioactive decay, time between radioactive emissions. And there's a website called hotbits.com that will be happy to give you random numbers derived from that, uh, from radioactive decay. And that's the, apparently the best there is. We're also bad at judging randomness. This might not be the best example because you might be able to, to get, figure out the answer, but here's just a set of values from, one of them is from a random number generator, which for all practical purposes here today, because there's only 200 samples, we'll consider a random. And the other is from a completely deterministic equation. Now, you might be able to look at that and see some patterns in there, but here's what's going on. The difference between these two is really stark. At first glance, these might look indistinguishable, but here is the, in this case, here is the function that describes this. In other words, this is the value 1. If this is value 1, you look up on this graph, boom, and you pick off value 2. Then you put value 2 in, you get value 3. So this is the next value. Sorry, even though it says x i minus 1, it should be plus 1. So this explains this sequence of data. Given a starting point, this graph explains all the rest of the values. This is completely deterministic. This is completely random. And yet up here, they're really not that different. OK, another example, randomness is not intuitive. This is a famous problem, was or rather infamous to some extent, it was very popular about 15 or 20 years ago called the Monty Hall problem. If you remember the game, uh, the, the game show, Let's Make a Deal, here's the situation. I show you three doors. I've got a booby prize behind two of the doors. I've got the prize of your life, your cruise, whatever you want, your car, behind one of those doors. You pick a door. I open a door and show you the booby prize, one of them, one of the bad prizes. And then I say, do you want to change your guess? Well, think about that for a little while. Do you want to change your guess? You've made a guess. I've opened the door. I've showed you a bad prize. Do you want to change your guess? Do you want to change? Do you want to not change? Or does it make any difference? Well, I won't ask for a poll. This caused a lot of uh, controversy when it came out. It was in Parade Magazine. It was on the Car Talk guys on radio. Uh, carried it for several weeks. Professional statisticians wrote in. And uh, to a large extent, they were wrong. The answer is that you want to change your guess. And you might not believe me. If you don't believe me, come up a little bit later, and we can talk about it. And I can prove to you that that is the correct answer. You absolutely want to change your guess. And it absolutely does make a difference. But that is an example of, the, of faulty intuition. This is a problem. This is a very simple problem. There's, there's only three doors. It confused professional statisticians, people who are paid to get this answer right. Okay, so 
Another example, the gambler's fallacy, right? If you've got something that you know is a fair game, say you're flipping a fair coin and you get a sequence of all heads or several heads in a row, and you want to bet on the next flip of the coin, what's your bet going to be? Well, it's, it, it makes no difference, right? If it's a fair coin, there is no history. Gambler's fallacy is what keeps people coming back to places like this. There is a whole multi-billion dollar industry built partly on the gambler's fallacy. And to make, it, to make it worse, they really play on it. Here's an example of a roulette table. For those of you who don't know, have lived sheltered lives. Uh, there's a wheel here with 36 numbers and sometimes a zero and a double zero, so 36 to 38 different numbers. You spin the wheel, you put a ball in, and depending on how you place your chips on here, you've bet on, on that number or certain variations, all odds, all red, whatever, to come up. And they help you along very nicely in the casino by putting this scorecard up here, which gives the history of the previous 20 or so trials. And they are happy. They will give you pads of paper and pens and pencils and be happy to have you stand there and make notes from the history of the game thinking that you've got a system. Because people who have gambling systems are the people who have built Las Vegas and Atlantic City. <laughs> okay. One other example. Coincidences. I hear this, this phrase a lot, uh, especially from Christians. There are no such things as coincidences. Maybe yes, maybe no. I'm not here to say that something that you experienced in your life that you consider miraculous is a coincidence. But I'm saying that there are such things as coincidences. We're to expect them if randomness is a godly ordained principle. Just a, a really simple-minded example, and you can look this up in a variety of places. How large a group of people must you have to have the probability being at least 50%? In other words, you want to bet that there are at least two people in a room who have the same birthday? I heard the right answer over there. That's a little too low, but you're on the right track. So the answer is 23. So this is an educated audience, but most people want, are, are thinking of numbers on the order of 100 or so because 365 days, right? What are the odds? You need a lot of people. Well, part of the trick to this question is I'm not saying how many people do I need to have the same birthday as me? I'm saying, how many do I need to have two of the same birthdays? Right? So if I want to say, how many people do I need to have the same birthday as X? Well, that number then goes up by a lot. OK. So let's move on to some more examples of order in randomness. Now, I'm going to show you some fractals here something I deal with a little bit professionally. This is a deterministic fractal. Deterministic because the rules that generate this are completely deterministic, completely laid out. And I can describe them. You start with a triangle here. You take each side of the triangle and you add a little triangle of one, one, two, three, four, five, one-sixth the size, I think that is, right? So you pop a little triangle on each side. Then you take each one of these sides and pop another little triangle on there. Then you take each of the sides, each of these little sides, and pop another little triangle on. And you keep doing that. Mathematically, you want to do it out to infinity. When you do it on a computer or a piece of paper, you run into a range in which it no longer makes sense to go to the next step. You've generated a fractal, something here called a fractal object. It's got variability on infinitely small 
scales, spatial scales, and it's self-similar. That is, if I pick a little piece over here and blow it up, it's going to look the same. No matter how many times I blow it up, it's got variability that keeps showing up no matter how much you expand it. Another interesting property of this, the perimeter of this object is infinite. And yet I can draw a box around it, right? So it's got finite area but infinite perimeter. Okay, another example of a deterministic fractal, you may have seen this one, something called the Mandelbrot set. This is generated by a, iterating a, uh, an equation with complex numbers. The point being that if I take a little piece of this, we're going to start up here. We're going to take a little piece here and expand it. I get this. And then if I take a little piece over here and expand it, I get this. And if I take one of these little curly cues here and expand it, I get this. And you can see what I'm getting at here. No matter how many times I do this, I am going to pick up another level of variability at the next stage. It never goes away. Now, those are mathematical fractals, right? Those are things that you can generate in a computer. What about fractals in the real world? Now, now we start getting into something, into uh, random fractals. So here's a very famous paper published in 1967 by Mandelbrot, the person who coined the term fractals. It's called How Long is the Coast of Britain? The idea being that if you're going to try to measure essentially the circumference, the coastline of this island, it depends on how big your yardstick is. So if I take yardsticks of this size, which is several miles or dozens of miles, and put them around, I get one value. Then I make the yardstick smaller and smaller and smaller. And as I make it smaller, I pick up more and more variation, little nooks and crannies and inlets. And the coast, the apparent size of the coastline, length of the coastline, increases as I make the unit of measurement smaller. So what's the answer? How big is, how, what, what is the coastline, the value for the coastline? Well, it's, it's an undefined question. But what you can do is plot over here how the apparent length, so here's the total length in kilometers, how the length increases. We're going to read from right to left as, this is a logarithm here, so as the length of the side goes down, going this way, the apparent length of the circumference goes up. And you can define, if you care to, if you're mathematically inclined, the length of this coastline, or some properties of the coastline, at least, by the slopes of these lines. So these are scaling laws. And this is an example of a random fractal. It's self-similar on different scales, because this same law, this same power law behavior holds no matter where you start on this curve. If you're over here or over here, it's the same it's the same rule. But, of course, the coastline does not look identical if I take a little piece and magnify it by 100. It's statistically similar, statistically similar in this sense, the sense that it follows that curve. Okay, another example of random fractals, you can use a similar idea to generate computer landscapes. Here's the idea. If you take a straight line, pop it up a random amount in the middle, take each of those two lines, pop them either up or down or a smaller random amount and keep doing that and then extend that, do it in two dimensions, you get something that looks like this, an awful lot like a real mountain range, color it appropriately and artistically, and you get mountains that look pretty realistic. Now this is generating computer-generated landscapes, but you can use the same kind of reasoning in reverse to quantify the roughness or irregularity of actual mountains, or actual landscapes. Another example, 
fractal properties have been found and used to characterize uh, the anatomy of the lung. So if you look down here, this, this is the branching pattern of the airways in the lungs. You look down here, you see little branches that look like the bigger branches here that look like the bigger ones here as you go up in size scale. And again, these can be quantified with the same kinds of mathematics. So let me give you, I think, one last example about what we might consider rare events. This is the Richter scale for earthquake distribution. Richter scale, logarithmic scale that describes the distribution of earthquakes based on their energy. So this is number of events per year. This is for various states. This is the magnitude of the earthquake. And you can see this does not follow a normal distribution. As you go down in magnitude, you get many, many more events. There's little things, little trembles, uh, tremblers going on all the time, little tremors and uh, very few, very large events. So it leads to a whole, this kind of thing leads to a whole different way of thinking. We might be prone, for example, to, if we lived in California especially, to pray that the big one doesn't hit. The big one is out here. The big one is one of these huge earthquakes. But look, it's the same properties. It's the same set of fundamental, fundamental physical laws described by the same mathematical relations that explain these earthquakes as well as these earthquakes. So praying that the big one doesn't hit is basically saying, please take away this beautiful, randomly ordered construction that explains nature. Okay, so let me summarize the uh, randomness part, and in about three minutes, I'll try to go through the second half of my talk. <laughs> so I'm claiming, I'm pr proposing randomness has a, is a law as fundamental to how God runs the universe as any other physical mathematical law. So just as we wouldn't pray, for example, for an object to fly upward when released, violating a physical law that we are comfortable with, the law of gravity, we shouldn't pray for God's intervention in random events. I'm really making the claim that things that we perceive as random really are random, and they're random for a reason. It's one of the physical principles that God put into place to make the world work as he wanted it to work. We might not understand it, but it's out there, and we're here in part because of it. Okay. So the other thing that I did want to talk about, and I can go through this relatively quickly because this is kind of a fun part, is another way that, say, nature may conspire against us to try to get a good uh, internal model of how God interacts with the world is through sensory illusions. Imperfections of our sensory systems makes it really hard to get an accurate internal representation of what's really going on. So a lot of this you've seen before. First of all, you know that our visual system is sensitive to only a very small part of the spectrum. There are, I'm going to go through some of these really quickly. Are these lines curved or straight? They are straight. Which circle in the center is larger, this one or this one? They're the same size, right? Thank you. Is there a triangle here? Of course, there's no triangle here. Your perceptual system fills in the gaps, and you see a triangle. Something that you might not be so familiar with, auditory illusions. Now, this is a set of tones. I believe it's 12 tones that are generated. Each one actually is a combination of tones. And you'll hear it go up, and you'll hear it sound like this sequence keeps going up. In fact, what you're hearing is 12 tones 
repeated. That's where it started again. 10, 11, 12. That's where it started again. Right? Clever combination of tones makes it sound like this thing is going up all the time. In fact, it is repeating, and in analogy to one of Escher's famous prints. Another one, this one is really interesting. It's called the McGurk effect. First of all, I want everybody, you can cheat if you want to, but you're really depriving yourself of, of, of the effect. Close your eyes. What is she saying? Baba with a B? Open your eyes. Now what is she saying? She's saying the same thing, of course, right? There's an intersensory conflict between her lips and what you're hearing. Okay, I'm not going to go through all of these. Suffice it to say there are hundreds of these kinds of sensory illusions. Let me just touch on one that I think is really fascinating, uh, an illusion of, uh, of uh, temporal processing. If I can rig, I have not done this experiment, but uh, I know the people, some of the people who have done it. If I rig up an apparatus where I press a key and a light shows up, the way that I keep an, a coherent internal model of the world is by adjusting for variable neural delays in the different sensory systems and motor systems, right? So let's say I want to fool that system. I press on the key, but I wait about a tenth of a second or so for the light to show up. And I have you do that experiment. I have you do, do those trials for dozens or hundreds of times. Eventually, your brain will recalibrate. It will decide, oh, wait a minute. You know, I must have some extra neural delay. For some reason, I don't understand. And boom, you'll perceive the light is coming on as soon as you press the key, if I appropriately mix the right conditions. Then I, move the, then, then I make that delay smaller, right? So what do you think happens? People will perceive the light has coming on before they press the key. <laughs> okay. Now, this is simple, right? This is a, this is a trivial, trivial little laboratory investigation, but it affects something that we consider in some way sacrosanct, which is temporal processing, right? I mean, you might be willing to believe that your visual system can be confused, but your sense of temporal order, now you're starting to really hit deep. So... The conclusions that I draw from, from this, I think it's amazing that the universe is understandable at all given our sensory limitations, possibly even a miracle. Math and physical laws demonstrate a universal order, perhaps divinely ordained. That's what I would say. Despite our subjective sense, randomness has a beauty and order all of its own, and we should embrace randomness as one of God's organizing principles. On the other hand... Divine intervention might be completely deterministic and orderly, and our limitations prevent us from seeing this. But would a benevolent God do this? I don't know. I can't resist the nagging idea in the back of my mind that the two premises that I have shown to you, sensory illusions and randomness, may be in conflict with each other. So come back next year and, hear, hear, and, and uh, see if I've come up with a resolution to this. Thank you.